0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll give you a sneak preview of the July issue of the Dayton Jewish Observer. And first we'll start with the opinion section, I am a Jew? Question mark, by Hannah Kasper-Levinson. I have a question that has guided me and confused me through so much of my life. Am I a Jew? I know that according to Jewish law, I am Jewish since my mother is Jewish. But am I Jewish enough? I wonder this every Friday night at holiday gatherings when I volunteer at work. Since I married my husband, and even more so since I moved to Dayton, I feel more comfortably part of this extended Jewish family. But that hasn't stopped me questioning my place in it. Could this questioning be part of what defines my Judaism? Religious traditions were not part of my upbringing. My family didn't belong to a synagogue. I never had a bat mitzvah and I don't understand Hebrew. On the flip side, I was proud to grow up a Jewish New Yorker. Yiddish words were sprinkled in our conversations at home. I loved my mom's Eastern European inspired cooking. I watched her with somber curiosity as she lit yardside candles. And I was uh, was defensive, ready to fight anyone who I felt was uttering an anti-semitic sentiment. But it's more complex than the religious versus cultural debate. It's tricky to try to describe the nuances that sculpt a family. It's much easier to say, I'm Jewish than to explain, my mother is a Jew from the Bronx and my dad was raised Catholic. Should I mention that I observed my grandmother whispering the rosary at night? That my great aunt, the nun, lived in a convent I loved visiting because they grew their own food and had a tiny museum of Lithuanian amber? I'm often met with blank stares when I shared these anecdotes with members of the Jewish community my imposter syndrome starts to set in. I was named after the German-Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt. In the 1930s, Arendt became a political activist, working with the German Zionist organization and rescuing Jewish children from the Third Reich. She was arrested and interned in Germany and France. In 1941, she immigrated to America, where she wrote for various Jewish publications published her influential books and established herself as an American intellectual. In Arendt's most controversial book Eichmann in Jerusalem, 1963 she originated the idea of the banality of evil. The Ashkenazi Jewish tradition would have you name your child after a relative who came before you. My folks decided to have me walk in the footsteps of a woman theorized that there could have been more done to prevent six million deaths had the victims been more politically active and not taken the banality of evil for granted. The architect of the final solution Arendt claimed was a bureaucrat not an ideologue. Arendt's ideas may be uncomfortable and yet the concept of the banality of evil was eerily prescient when we watch the horrors now unfolding before us. From extremist right-wing groups in the US and Europe, to Putin's war against Ukraine, and domestic, to domestic terrorism in our country. It's only recently I've started thinking about why my parents chose my namesake. I've never asked, but I can guess it's because she was fiercely intellectual and brave in a way I can only imagine. Her relationship to Judaism, though complex, was unmistakably central to her identity. My parents are pragmatic, critical, and individualist. As children, in the 1940s they both lost their fathers and were raised by single mothers. They pursued their education and moved to Manhattan in the 60s. They love to tell me that in the 70s they were both teaching where the Bronx was burning. My parents married and had children later than most in their generation. They grew up poor, left home married outside their faith, ultimately choosing to reject religion. When they had children, they put their heads together and decided that when it came to religion it was better not to decide. My brother and I would find our own paths. Their approach to parenting would be laissez-faire, letting things take their own course. I can't help but to have been influenced by them to admire their individual individualism and to carry that into my sense of what it means to be a creative individual. The thing is, no matter how much respect my parents how much I respect my parents, I have yearned since childhood for a sense of belonging to a greater community, and it wasn't until I met my husband that I started to embrace and explore the role of Judaism in my identity. You would think that spending my 20's and 30's in Brooklyn would have made it easy to find a Jewish community with which I could relate. I suppose the closest version was secular humanist Judaism. My husband and I tried a pop-up synagogue that described itself as an artist-driven, everybody-friendly, God-optional, experimental community for sacred Jewish gatherings. We went for holidays to a house in South Brooklyn with potluck dinners, where it was okay to be Jewish. We joined the Workers' Circle, hoping to get more involved with the social justice aspects of Judaism, but everyone worked too much and no one ever wanted to get together for Shabbat. I kind of loved all those places, but it was all a little vague and noncommittal. I never found my group or an especially firm sense of Jewish acceptance in New York City. Everyone seemed to have it figured out because they grew up conservative or reform or whatever and they knew exactly what it was they were supposed to embrace or rebel against. Who gets to decide if you're Jewish enough? Is it a higher being, those who came before you, the community? What if the deciding entity is not there to speak for you? If your definition of being Jewish is holding faith in a certain higher being, I don't fit your ideal. If it is questioning what defines faith, an inexplicable feeling of connection to the past and a desire to build community, then I may find my place. Still, is this enough? My husband has listened to me debate myself on this matter so many times throughout our years together. He has gently tried to convince me that I am my own worst enemy, that no one is judging me, and that there are multiple ways to be Jewish. How is a child molded into who they become or when they are raised outside of tradition? My parents chose to walk their own path, and I was free to follow or find my own way. Some would argue you will be lost without a set of tenets to live by. I know that's not true. I live by a strong moral code, and I'm raising my children with intent. Still, there might be a reason why I don't have the confidence to say out loud I belong and I believe it. We need a larger community outside ourselves for so many reasons, both practical and existential. So I'm working on it. I'm looking for the balance between individualism and the idea that I'm a jigsaw puzzle piece in a cultural jigsaw. My husband and I are raising our children with Jewish traditions and holidays while I teach in a Jewish school. We've had some lovely Friday nights with our Chavurah of new friends. I'm trying to give our kids the sense of belonging that I yearned for while encouraging them to respectfully question what they are taught and to make their own decisions as they grow. Am I a Jew? It seems no one really can answer this but me. Hannah Kasper Levinson teaches art at Hillel Academy of Date. Th- And next from the Dayton section, JCC Day at the Dragons, July 24th. As part of its centennial celebration, the JCC will host a day at the Dragons, Saturday, July 24th. The game begins at 1.05pm. Stadium seat tickets are $14 each to have tickets texted, $16 each to have tickets printed and mailed. Proceeds benefit the JCC. Tickets must be purchased by Monday, June 27th and are available via Ticket Representative Carl Hertzberg at 937-228-2287, extension 160, online at jewishdayton.org, or by calling JCC Program Administrator Helen Jones at 937-610-5513 to request an order form. Field Day and Lunch, July 31st. With the theme, Reignite Your Mind, Body, and Spirit, Beth Abraham Synagogue will host a field day and dairy kosher lunch from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Sunday, July 31st at Indian Rifle Park, 2801 East Stroop Road, Kettering. The free program is for all ages and will be held in partnership with Beth Jacob Congregation, Chabad, Hillel Academy, the JCC Early Childhood Program, PJ Library, Temple Beth Orr, temple israel through a jewish federation innovation grant rsvp for lunch by july 22nd at jewishdayton.org. dayton.org and next from the observer from the dayton section dayton's jewish community center at 100 part two a place to call home by marshall weiss and mark katz ohio governor james rhodes described the site as the finest community complex that i have seen in the state when he spoke at the dedication of the Jewish community complex on Denlinger Road in Madison Township, now Trotwood, September 10, 1978. More than 500 guests heard the governor's pronouncement in the gym of the complex's Jesse Phillips Building, the new home of the Dayton Jewish Center. Dayton hadn't had a dedicated Jewish community center site since 1941. And back then, it had been a converted house in the East End Jewish neighborhood, inadequate for the needs of the growing Jewish community which had moved northwest up Salem Avenue. After decades of delays brought on by the world wars and then emergency campaigns to support the fledgling Jewish state under attack, Dayton now had a JCC to rival that of any large city. And the state of Israel was glad to know it. This dedication is an important occasion for Israel as well as the Dayton Jewish community, wrote Asher Naim Israel's Consul General in Philadelphia, whose office served Dayton. Israel is strengthened whenever a Jewish community is strengthened. It had something for everyone, recalled Bob Bernstein, who was involved with the project from start to completion. Old, young, orthodox, conservative, and reform. It was terrific. It was a game-changer. It was a special place. We had a basketball league for adults. It was a place of involvement. It unified the community. No one present that day had put more work into bringing about the Jewish community complex one piece at a time over a 30-year career than Robert Fitterman. The Jewish Federation, then called the Jewish Community Council, hired him in 1948 at age 35 as its executive director and to manage its two dozen employees. With the dedication of the campus, which also comprised Covenant House Jewish Nursing Home, the largest outdoor pool in the country, in the county rather, a camp lodge and more than 75 acres of grounds, Fitterman retired, turning over the operations and management of its nearly 200 employees to Executive Director Peter H. Wells. We were able to service every age group, Wells said, from early childhood to seniors, from a daily senior luncheon program to recreational programs. The 65,000 square foot Phillips building which would be expanded to 78,000 square feet in the 1980s was a place to make new friends too. I met my wife Andy at the swimming pool Bill Franklin said. More than 60 years later he remembered she was wearing a white bathing suit. I loved that building Bill Franklin said. It was a second home. On the day of the soft opening in January 1978 a snowstorm closed most of the city. Federation, Director of Special Services, Harris Abrams, and Fitterman did everything to clear the ground so people could join the center, Well said. There were many in our community, sincere people, who as recently as two and three years ago didn't think that the day was upon us when we would see the realization of the Jesse Phillips building and a Jewish center in it, Fitterman noted in the site's dedication book. The drive for this JCC began in 1949, A year after Fitterman arrived in Dayton, the board voted to allocate part of its annual campaign funds each year toward a JCC building. The opportunity to purchase the first 54 acres of land at the Denlinger Road site in Madison Township, then surrounded by farmland, came about in 1956 mainly with a large request from Nathan Sanders along with the JCC building funds. Elmer Moyer selected the land. Federation dedicated its outdoor pool there in July 1961, and over the next few years added a camp lodge in the woods, baseball diamonds, and can- tennis courts. Industrialist Jesse Phillips chaired a capital funds drive in 1966 to build a JCC and a Jewish nursing home at the same time on the site, but with emergency funds needed for Israel with the 1967 Six-Day War, Federation leaders decided to build the nursing home first. Covenant House, opened in 1973. Later that year, Israel's Yom Kippur War became a more urgent priority than a center building. Wells said he cultivated young leaders to become involved in the process. In 1975, the Federation launched its campaign to finally fund the JCC building, combined with reserves the Federation had built up. Jesse Phillips had given the lead gift, Wells said, and he was also a wonderful, outstanding fundraiser for whatever he put his mind to. In all of this, the key player was Bill Levitin. He was chairman of the building committee and also the builder. He was not only the construction manager, he was the architect. Abrams was the Federation's point person who dealt with Levitin. Mel Kaplan, hired as the center's director in 1977, remembered how the Jesse Phillips building created a social environment that built friendships and connections to the Jewish community. It was a given that children and teenagers would benefit from the center's amenities, Kaplan said, but he noted that senior adults and their adult children benefited even more. you would go to the lobby and people would just hang around after they played or did what they did. They'd sit around and talk, Kaplan said. People appreciated what was going on, especially senior adults, who all of a sudden had a place to go, had a reason for doing things, for volunteering. Racquetball and tennis were big draws, and the center kept waiting lists for both, except on Shabbat. The center was open on Saturday afternoons but didn't take phone calls for reservations. When asked to share their memories of the JCC, members of the Growing Up Jewish in Miami Valley, Ohio Facebook group mentioned the outdoor pool more than anything else. The high dive, multicolor concrete umbrella structures, pizza bagels, cheap ice cream and mini cartons, the disappointment of the rest period and waiting it out, the entrance where your membership card was being held, the elderly playing cards and dominoes and reading their Yiddish newspapers, or what Aryeh Dory recalled. I remember dripping wet, running down the ramp to the snack bar or the bathroom, the mushroom looking shade pillars, the scary diving board section, the tall fences, and the camp up the hill. I remember pizza bagels and purple and red chewy round candies, Amy Haynes said. I remember making some of the best friends and memories there in the section where all the BBYOers and other teens hung out, Darryl Weiss said. My mom used to refer to it as Muscle Beach. And the water was freezing until the end of the summer. The pool was unheated. Melinda Doner recalled the camp song, Camp JC "Our Hats Off to Thee, and that putting on plays in the lodge was so much fun. One person remembered pretending to need a swim rescue when he was a boy so he could be saved by a cute lifeguard. Another said she ate lots of ice cream bars as a girl just to catch a glimpse of the handsome boy working at the snack bar. The boy was Alan Brown, son of Lewis Brown, who served as Jewish Center Director from 1968 to 1977. He was my first date at 14 and he was 15. We dated 10 years got married in 1979 and we're still going strong said the girl with the ice cream bars Kathy Brown. When Lewis Brown oversaw JCC programming in the years before a building Marilyn Sarrelson was membership secretary Marlene Carney handled the programming and Linda A. Cohen ran the preschool Ben Campbell a teacher during the school year oversaw the pool. Dayton's JCC at first opened in 1922 to help Americanize Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe. 70 years later, it would return to its roots for a time. Between 1989 and 1993, when the Jewish Federation resettled nearly 200 Jews in Dayton from the former Soviet Union, the JCC provided each with a free membership. We would never charge for anyone who couldn't afford it, Kaplan said, and we wanted to help integrate them, though he added that they didn't use the facilities all that much. They were older. Some of them used our senior adult services. They basically stuck together in the new apartment building, Covenant Manor, on our campus. The other thing the center did was we had English as a second language classes. We did that for maybe four or five years. Two decades after the Jesse Phillips building was dedicated, half of the identified Jewish population of the Miami Valley lived in the suburbs south of Dayton. The identified population of Dayton area's Jewish community had also dropped from its peak of 7,200 in the early 70s to about 5,500. As the population shift southward gained momentum, the Federation opened its JCC South site for programming in 1992 at a storefront on Whip Road in Washington Township. This was the Federation's first foothold toward opening the Bootshop Center for Jewish Culture and Education. 14 acres of land at Loop Road and Versailles Drive in Centerville in 2002. Jewish Federation property manager Roger Apple, who oversaw construction of the 24,312 square foot building, continues on with the Federation these days as Operations and Security Director. When the Federation raised funds for the Boonshaft CJCE, it also attempted to raise funds for an endowment to maintain its north facility. But with state-of-the-art fitness and recreation centers opening in numerous municipalities across the Miami Valley, JCC memberships dropping precipitously, and members of the Jewish community reluctant to support an endowment fund for the North facility, the Federation sold the Phillips building and much of its campus, much of the campus, to United Theological Seminary in 2005. The JCC would then be headquartered at the Boonshaft CJCE, and would present programs across the region the model it follows today from its opening day nearly 20 years ago on september 2nd 2002 the Boonshoft cjce's anchor has been its jcc early childhood program with audrey mckenzie in charge for most of those years the jcc is also known for its film fest cultural arts and book series and children's theater at various venues across the miami valley for Camp Shalom at Temple Bethor and for coordinating community Jewish holiday celebrations. My formative years were at my local JCC, and I love everything we're doing now and planning for the future," said Kathy Gardner, CEO of the Jewish Federation, which has operated Dayton's JCC since it first opened a century ago. With the retirement of JCC Director Jane Hockstein. Mark Jacob, returned to the JCC earlier this year to serve as its senior director. I've been doing this since '94," he said of his JCC work. Merrill Hattenbach is the JCC's program manager, and Helen Jones is its program administrator. For the coming year, Mark looks to add niche programming to resonate with area Jews and non-Jews. He's starting a group for baby boomers in August. We're looking for pockets of programmatic areas that have fallen through the cracks, he said looking at what role we can play in the general community through partnerships. The JCC will celebrate its centennial with a day at the Dayton Dragons, Sunday, July 24th at 105 p.m. People are itching to get back with each other and have that place they can call a second home. And that's what the JCC has always been to me, a second home. And next, a sidebar to this feature, JCC at 100, who remembers the time capsule. We opened it for the JCC's 100th by Mark Katz. Two small boxes of documents tell some of the story of Dayton's Jewish community on September 10, 1978, dedication day for the Jesse Phillips building and the Jewish community complex. They hold the contents of the Jewish community time capsule which had been sealed into the brick building on Denlinger Road. After the United Theological Seminary purchased the building, contractors found the capsule during renovations. The contents are now part of the Jewish Federation's archival materials at Wright State University Special Collections and Archives. The capsule was to be opened 50 years after the dedication in September 2028, but with only six years to go, the JCC centennial seems a good time to take a peek. Every Jewish organization puts something into the time capsule, said Peter Wells, the Federation's executive director at the time. Buried at the bottom of one box is a cassette tape, heavily taped shut, left by Hadassa. There's a white wrinkled toddler's t-shirt with a logo for the Dayton Jewish Center Happy Hollow Camp, a paper coin roll for dimes, save dimes to help Hadassah, and that day's edition of the Dayton Daily News, wider and longer than today's version, with the lead headline, Carter Brezhnev, to talk later in 78. There are also a few black and white photos, some of them taken during the ceremonies prior to sealing the capsule up. Documents from synagogues still with us, Beth Abraham, Beth Jacob, and Temple Israel, are represented, as well as documents from a synagogue, Shomre Amunah, that has since disbanded. Temple Bethor and Chabad had not yet been established in Dayton. A legal pad listing the typed names of what was believed to be the Jewish community at the time reached 80 pages with 30 names per page. At first glance, that doesn't seem to establish the entire Jewish community of the time. On closer inspection, only male names were included. Even female names of married couples are not listed. There is a Jerusalem Post and a history of the weekly Dayton Jewish Chronicle. Temple Israel Men's Club listed 207 members and Wepran Youth Group listed more than 100 members. United Synagogue Youth at Beth Abraham posted a vibrant schedule. Leonard Spialter left a trove of documents concerning Beth Abraham's history and High Bloom wrote a history of Beth Jacob. Jewish War Veterans Post 587 left a copy of its April 11, 1948 charter. Eating in 1978 didn't come at a heavy cost, especially if the meal wasn't kosher. Temple Israel Sisterhood offered a kosher-style corned-beef sandwich with kaiser roll, a half pint of coleslaw, a pickle, and dessert at $5 a box, delivered $9 for two. The Sydney Cussworm B'nai Brith Lodge held a spring steak dinner with local radio host Lou M. at the Tropics, and later a free steak dinner at the same location to hear an in-depth report on the new JCC building. And next from the Mazel Tov section of the Observer, Dayton Dragons co-principal owner Greg Rosenbaum co-chaired and served as Master of Ceremonies of the Jewish American Heritage Month Luncheon held in the Kennedy Caucus Room on Capitol Hill May 17th, the first time in three years the luncheon has been held in person. Among the speakers were U.S. Rep. Mike Turner and Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. Rosenbaum chairs the Jewish American Heritage Month Advisory Board. Its aim is to highlight the contributions of Jewish Americans to American history, culture, and society, and educate non-Jews about those contributions. The luncheon honored former Anti-Defamation League National Director Abe Foxman, philanthropist's Tili Charney and Rabbi Moshe Margaretten, and Bukharian Chief Rabbi Itzhak Yehoshua. One of the perks of emceeing an event like this is that I get to introduce my senators and representatives, Rosenbaum said of Turner and Brown. Turner talked about the contributions of Dayton's Jewish community to the city, such as the Schuster Center. Brown spoke of the contributions American Jews have made in human rights and civil rights. John Westerkamp graduated magna cum laude in computer engineering from Ohio Northern University in Ada, where he also played center back on the men's soccer team. He's currently deciding between graduate school and professional employment. Jacob's proud family includes his parents, John and Lori, and his sister, Rachel. Send your mazel tov announcements to mweiss at jfgd.net. Next, from the religion section of the Observer, A Country of Kindness by Rabbi Nacho Mengell Chabad of Greater Dayton. In the year 2000, Friends of Chabad, Lubavitch, in Washington, D.C. organized an event called Celebration 50, commemorating 50 years of the Rebbe's leadership. At one of the sessions, 50 Chabad rabbis representing the 50 states signed a Citation of Gratitude to present to the President of the United States on behalf of the Chabad Movement. The citation of gratitude was to pay tribute and give thanks to the United States for having rescued the 6th and 7th Rebbes of Chabad from the Nazi Inferno in Europe. Today we know the details of the harrowing story of how high-level American intervention led to an extraordinary episode. The German military intelligence arm, the Abwehr, was tasked with locating and rescuing Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson and his family middle of devastated Warsaw and seeing that they would be brought to a safe place. American leadership opened the doors of the U.S. to Rabbi Schneerson and his family when welcoming Jewish refugees was still highly unpopular here. He settled in Brooklyn and immediately resumed his holy work. America again opened its doors in 1941 to the Rebbe's son-in-law, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. He was sent on the last commercial passenger ship across the Atlantic before sea travel became too dangerous. Eventually, he would succeed his father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, and spearhead a worldwide renaissance of Jewish commitment from his Brooklyn headquarters. The rabbis were both constantly grateful to America for what it had done. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, known simply as the Rebbe, would refer to the U.S. as a country of loving-kindness. He often pointed out its virtues as historically important even as he tried to help guide the process of national growth towards a realization of its most profound values. I was honored to represent our state of Ohio. Personally, it was a great privilege for me being a child of a Holocaust survivor who was also welcomed here, who raised a beautiful family and did his holy work here as well. It was a moving, moment that I remember with great fondness. On the occasion of our nation's birthday it is worth giving thanks again for the remarkable privilege of being a citizen of this land of loving kindness. This does not mean that we pretend for a moment that we have fully realized the ideals that call America to greatness. We have not yet accomplished what all those ideals demand of us. We must take a truthful accounting and, without flinching, see where more work is needed and what things need to be repaired or reconsidered. However, at the same time, we look with an equally sharp gaze at the good that Americans have realized, value it properly, and gain inspiration from every good accomplishment. Ignoring that which needs correcting makes us less than we should be. Missing the good we have accomplished leads to paralysis and depression, rather than a deepened commitment to an unstoppable advance. King Solomon tells us that the wise have eyes in their head. That curious teaching means that we should look to the head, meaning the beginnings, where we come from, to evaluate where we are in the present. Through history we can see a trajectory that moves us even further toward those magnificent magnificent ideals upon which this country was founded. We strive toward a more perfect union, Meaning that we embrace the idea that our national life should always move towards perfection, and we have in our own history that which can inspire us as well. In a century that saw tyrants trying to subjugate the world and their violent power, uh, subjugate the world to their violent power, Americans in the millions paid with their blood, treasure, and labor to stop them. We did not take land or colonies as our reward. We sought only to restore the conquered peoples, and even our one-time enemies, to calm and prosperity, acts of kindness on a massive scale unprecedented in human history. It has been said, if you want to know how bad the world is, read the newspaper, and if you want to know how good it is, study history. Let's do both. Approach the problems that confront us today with the confidence that history should give us. Though this country may be imperfect, it has been and continues to be kind in ways never before seen in the world. Confident that our own Jewish experience and teachings are at work in this America, let us rededicate ourselves towards realizing Judaism's grand vision of a time that there will be neither famine nor war, nor envy nor rivalry, for good will flow in abundance and all the delights will be freely available as dust. Therefore, the occupation of the entire world will be solely to know God. And next from the Jewish family education section of the Observer, Being Truth, from the Power of Story series by Candace R. Quiatek. My father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt where he became a great nation. But the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us we cried out to the Lord who freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand and by signs and wonders. Those verses from Deuteronomy are familiar because they are central to the Jewish story we recount each year at Passover. But more than just an exercise in remembering, storytelling is the the great vehicle of moral education, writes Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. It tells us who we are and who our ancestors hoped we would be modern philosopher Alistair Mac- MacIntyre amplifies its significance by highlighting the personal impact of storytelling. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? It turns out truth is at the heart of the best Jewish stories in storytelling. The value of truth permeates the fabric of Judaism, writes Israeli scientist and scholar Rabbi Ari Zivatovsky. Revealed at Sinai, emet, the Hebrew word truth, is one of the 13 divine attributes ascribed to God. While that concept is nearly incomprehensible, we can grasp the Talmudic sages' version, the signature of God is truth. In the earthly realm, Torah is truth, according to the psalmist. It's transcendent messages woven into the stories that shape our perspective on the world. Linked to both God and Torah, truth should speak with authority, with certainty, and without ambiguity, Rabbi Tzvi Freeman speculates. Yet truth's identity is weakly defined by negative commandments. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely keep far from falsehood furthermore truth rarely stands alone but is paired without uh, with other ethical imperatives loving kindness peace justice and the nearly endless quest for truth in rabbinic literature is framed as a series of debates which argue opposing views which a divine voice just may proclaim to be equally true It seems we have to rethink the idea of truth, Freeman concludes. Maybe truth isn't a fact at all. Maybe truth is more like a process. Truth is a complex, messy process of comprehending different viewpoints, evaluating and prioritizing between competing ideas and values, and identifying solutions for a particular situation. As Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi describes it, Truth is being immersed in the experience of thinking with God's mind. The state of being, that experience, that process, that itself is truth. How do the following tales illustrate the notion of being truth? The petitioners. Laying out yet another fresh change of clothes, the new assistant to Reb Shmuel of Lubavitch was puzzled. "'I wonder why the Rebbe is always dripping with perspiration "'when he comes out of these private meetings,' he thought to himself. "'What can he possibly be doing in that room, "'crowded with a desk, a dozen bookshelves, and endless visitors?' "'Just then the Rebbe came out of his study, once again covered with sweat. "'You're probably wondering about my appearance,' he remarked tiredly to his attendant. "'Over the past hour I have received twenty-five petitioners.' If I am to understand each person's situation, I must remove my clothes and dress in his. If I am to give him good advice, I must remove his clothes and change back into mine, for while in his clothes I can only see what he sees, and if he he saw a way out of his dilemma, he would not have to come to me in the first place. So for the past hour I have undressed and dressed myself 50 times. It is very hard work. The Lecture Rabbi Yisrael Salanter gave a regular Talmudic discourse. One day, a student asked a very sharp question that seemed to undermine the entire argument Salanter was making. As he paused for a moment, at least five acceptable answers came to the rabbi's mind to refute the question. Even though he could see that they were not ultimately true, he knew it was unlikely that anyone in the audience would see through them as he could he was tempted. He didn't want the Torah to lose honor from his failure, nor did he himself want to lose face in the classroom. Then he said to himself, admit the truth, and he stepped down. The book. Heading home from school for the first night of Hanukkah, Arnold and Beryl stopped by the pretzel lady who, holding a paper-covered basket, wore a heavy sweater against the falling snow. As the brothers walked away, they wondered if she had made enough money to buy candles for her menorah. While Beryl ran home for an extra box of candles, Arnold followed the woman's footprints to a basement door in an apartment alley. The boys met up near the school and retraced the route to the apartment. Peering into the side window, they saw their elderly friend on the floor unresponsive. A passerby helped break down the door and revive the woman. While she delightedly lit the candles, the man contemplated the barren apartment, examining an old frayed book on a shelf. He mentioned he was a book dealer and asked if the woman would sell it for $200. Shocked, she eventually agreed and soon after paying, the man hurried off. As the brothers left for home, they saw him in the distance tossing the book into the trash. Truth is a process of prioritizing conflicting values. Our choices determine both our own morality and the kind of society we create. Be truth. And literature to share as suggested by Candace Arquiatek, The Orphan's Daughter by Jan Cherubin. In this debut novel, Cherubin creates a strong portrait of a fractured Jewish family spanning two generations in the 20th century. The saga begins when seven-year-old Clyde is placed with his younger brother in a Jewish orphanage when their father abandons the family. Not unexpectedly, Clyde's relationships as an adult suffer in turn, most especially his relationship with his daughter. When a family emergency intervenes, however, things begin to change. For those who love stories that revolve around flawed characters and family drama rather than action or intrigue, this is a must-read and Dear Mr. Dickens by Nancy Chernin. Like so many others in the 19th century, the young Jewish woman Eliza Davis viewed the acclaimed English author Charles Dickens as a hero for using his writing to help others, especially the poor. But as she read Oliver Twist with its criminal mastermind, Fagin, described in classic Jewish stereotypes as dishonest, selfish, and ugly, Eliza decided to speak out multiple award-winning picture book for primary grades. Dear Mr. Dickens is the true story about the power of one person to improve the world by speaking out for what is right. And next the obituary section of the Observer. Joel Alter, JJ, son of Betty Alter and the late Sid Alter, passed away June 3rd. After graduating the Ohio State University, He began his career in Dayton working for the Dayton Jewish Center, He then moved to Philadelphia beginning his 20-plus years in the medical industry. He is survived by his sister Jill, brothers Mitchell, Linda, and Randall. He was the uncle of Molly, Allie, Sophie, Max, and Sadie. He loved fashion, Broadway, dogs, and his many friends, and mostly his mother Betty celebration of life will be held Sunday July 10th from 3 to 5 p.m. at One Lincoln Park. He will live on in our hearts forever. Howard M. Bender age 64 passed away suddenly at his home in Glendale Arizona on May 28th. Born in Dayton he was the son of the late Anna Lee Knee Block and Donald H. Bender. He attended Jefferson Elementary School, Colonel White High School, and was graduated from Fairview High School in 1974. He subsequently attended Washington University in St. Louis and was graduated from University of Iowa in 1978 with a BA in Political Science and History. He earned an MBA from Roosevelt University in 1986. He lived most of his adulthood in Buffalo Grove, Illinois where he built his career at AGIA and was an active volunteer and marathon runner for several causes. More recently, he and his family moved to Scottsdale. Howard was known for his personal integrity, diligence, willingness to help others, sly sense of humor, and devotion to his wife and children. He is survived by his wife of 41 years, Becky daughter and son-in-law Ellen and Anton and two grandchildren, Sarah and Michael of uh, Scottsdale, son, David Bender of Detroit, and sister, Michelle Bender of New York City. Interment was at Mount Sinai Cemetery in Phoenix. Donations in Howard's memory may may be made to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society or to the American Heart Association. Marcia E. Burick of Leeds, Massachusetts died peacefully in her sleep June 4th after celebrating her 60th college reunion at Wellesley College, surrounded by lifelong friends and classmates. She graduated from Wellesley College in 1962 with a major in political science. She was born in Dayton in 1940 to Simon and Rachel Burick. She graduated from Fairview High School and was always connected to family and friends in Dayton. Upon graduation from Wellesley, Marcia was the recipient of two Myling Soon Prizes which allowed her to t- attend a NATO Youth Conference in the south of France. She then joined the staff of the Press and Public Affairs Office of the UN Mission to the UN under the leadership of Ambassador Adley Stevenson in 1962, just a few weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis. She spent much of the next decade raising children, Ken and Dan, and embracing her new home in Northampton, where she, moved in, where she moved to in 1968. Marcia became active in politics and community services. During that time, she was also working as a press director and speechwriter for such organizations as Planned Parenthood of New York City, the Institute for International Education, the Fund for Peace, and occasionally for the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. She used to say that she drifted to the job of press officer from the visit of the Chinese table tennis team to the United States in Spring 1972 after the National Committee, a non-governmental organization, asked the U.S. Table Team Association then in China in Spring 1971 at the invitation of Premier Zhou Enlai, to invite the Chinese team to make a return visit to the U.S. in 1972, the beginning of U.S.-China relations. She traveled with the teams throughout the U.S. in April 1972. After moving to Northampton, she earned an M.A. in Urban Studies at Smith College and wrote her thesis on Hong Kong resettlement housing, having received the Mary Elvira Stevens Fellowship for Wellesley Alumni for travel and research abroad. In 1980, she became chief aide to the mayor of Northampton for a number of interesting years in local government, and during breaks was able to organize and conduct several tours of the world. Although she worked and traveled the world extensively, Northampton was her home. She was deeply involved and committed to the community, its people, and its institutions. She was a long-time and active member of Congregation B'nai Israel and was a staple at every political function. Her home in Fairway Village, Leeds, was her home base and she entertained friends from all over the world and spent time with their close friends in the neighborhood. She worked for many years, often under USIS or USAID auspices, consulting on social services or teaching government best practices in such places as the Baltics, Poland, Nigeria, Gaza, South Africa, and ran a program over several years for the Institute for Training and Development for government officials in Indonesia. She is survived by her son Ken and daughter-in-law Amanda and her grandchildren Samantha and Nathaniel. She is also survived by hundreds of devoted friends locally and globally. Marsha was known for her incredible warmth and generosity and will be dearly missed by all husband, Edward McColgan, passed away earlier this year. Her memory will be a blessing and her acts of kindness and good deeds will live on in this community and around the world. Contributions may be made to the Northampton Community Foundation. Richard Levinson of Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts died peacefully of natural causes on May 19th at Kimball Farms Nursing Center in Lenox. Born in Dayton on December 16, 1934, Richard Dick Levinson was the oldest son of Rose and Jewel Levinson. He and his brothers, Steve and Jim, grew up in a close-knit community where his parents welcomed friends, families, and uh, family, and visitors to their home for meals and Jewish holidays. In high school, Richard worked at his family's poultry business. He graduated as valedictorian of Fairview High School and earned degrees from Harvard College and Harvard Business School. Jeff married and raised three children. Uh, Richard married and raised three children, Jeff, Brian, and Tony, and John, and then uh, with his then wife Anne, now Stern. He worked many years for Binswanger Glass Company, served as president of a wall covering manufacturer and moved to Concord, Massachusetts where he co-owned the local print shop. He was conscientious in applying lessons learned from his early days in the family business about treating customers well. He especially enjoyed meeting new people who came into the shop in Concord. Richard acted in local theatre on the Concord, Arlington and Maynard stages and was an active member of the Concord Rotary Club. Later in life he met Phyllis Walt, and for over two decades, they shared their love of music, opera, and hosting friends for Meals and Scrabble. Richard is remembered lovingly by Phyllis Walt, his brother James and Meredith, his sons Jeff, Lisa Gianelli, Brian and Tony, and Rhonda, John and Rihanna Keynes, and his grandchildren William, Matthew, Joseph, Alexandra, Ayla, and Dobby, as well as beloved, De- beloved Dayton family members. He was pre- predeceased by his brother Steve and Rose. The family would like to thank the staff at Kimball Farms for the care they provided. The family will hold a memorial service for family and friends at a future date. A donation in celebration of Richard's life can be made to a charity of your choice or consider planting a tree in honor of his life. and Robert S. Bob Weinman, age 91, of Dayton, passed away June 8th. He was born November 23, 1930 in Toledo to Harry and Ida Weinman. Bob was a proud graduate of the University of Toledo where he was a member of Alpha Epsilon Pi fraternity and earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in education. Bob was a U.S. Army veteran and member of the Jewish war veterans. Following his service, he pursued a career in education spanning over 30 years, during which he served as assistant superintendent for employee relations with Dayton Public Schools. In his retirement, he worked alongside his wife, the love of his life, in their home based invitation and stationery business by invitation only. Bob is a longtime member of Beth Abraham Synagogue, where he at one time served as vice president and treasurer. Bob was preceded in death by his beloved wife of 52 years, Retta. He is survived by his daughters and sons-in-law, Barbara and David Schoen of Dayton, Arlene and Herbert Beale of Bethesda, Maryland, grandchildren Samuel and Sarah Schoen, Rachel Schoen, Aaron and Andrea Beale, and great-grandchildren Olivia and Ava, sister Rochelle Russell of Toledo, and several nieces and nephews determined was at Beth Abraham Cemetery. Memorial contributions may be made to the University of Toledo Foundation, Beth Abraham Synagogue, or the Hospice of Dayton in Bob's memory. The family would like to thank the Laurels of Kettering and Hospice of Dayton for their care and support of Bob. And next we'll turn to JTA for, for some news updates. January 6th related filing reveals U.S. Marine was jailed for plot-to-shoot-up synagogue by Ron Campeus. Washington. A filing in a case stemming from the January 6, 2021 insurrection revealed that a U.S. Marine in a relationship with one of the defendants served 19 months for a a plot-to-shoot-up-a-synagogue. The revelation came in a filing by federal prosecutors arguing against a request by an alleged insurgent Riley Williams to loosen restrictions pending her trial Williams who lives in Harrisburg Pennsylvania lied about a meeting she had with the former Marine the prosecutors filing said Williams who is under house arrest and wears an ankle monitor is seeking less stringent restrictions the Patriot News reported over the weekend the June 10th filing by the US Attorney does not name the Marine who was given a bad conduct discharge or when or where he plotted to attack a synagogue. It only says that he stole his roommate's truck and attempted to purchase a firearm with the intent of committing a mass shooting at a synagogue. The man was sentenced to 19 months in custody and was given a bad conduct discharge from the U.S. Marine Corps. Williams, who is among the more prominent defendants because she allegedly stole U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi's laptop, broke conditions of her release by having video meetings with the former Marine, who is believed to be Williams' then-boyfriend, and by meeting him in person in August 2021, the filing said. At that in-person meeting, the former Marine revealed to Williams the circumstances of his prior arrest, prosecution, incarceration, and discharge from the United States Marine Corps. Cat, an investigative journalism website, was the first to identify Williams shortly after the insurrection. To do so, the group used a video that showed a woman with a hat emblazed, uh, emblazoned with occult Nazi symbology dancing until a narrator says Heil Hitler, at which point she gives the Nazi salute. A congressional committee investigating the insurrection last week launched public hearings and focused particularly on the role of far-right groups in its organization. Next from the Jewish Week, the New York Jewish Week, why this video about seltzer and Torah study went viral in the Orthodox Jewish community by Jacob Henry. A video of an Orthodox Jewish man making a passionate speech about his love for the Talmud and cold seltzer spread like wildfire over Twitter showing off what makes yeshiva culture such a unique part of Judaism. Rabbi Aryeh Moshe Lyser who lives in Muncie, New York appears to be having the time of his life in the viral video. Posted on Twitter May 31st, the video was seen by thousands of people. Lyser starts off saying that he wants an arve psachim with a Rabbeinu David Rishutz cold seltzer and I just want to check out life. That means roughly what he wants Uh, that he wants to read a specific commentary about a specific chapter of Talmud with a wickedly cold cup of seltzer at hand. He then goes into more specifics, talking about how the seltzer has to be in plastic cups, not styrofoam, and eventually he begins singing. The video was posted by a Twitter user named Ayal Bavash, who deleted it on June 1st. The reason why I took it down is because Lyser seemed to be very uncomfortable with it going viral, Basvash wrote on Twitter. I never meant to cause anyone agmas nefesh, anxiety. I just loved the video, his exuberance, love for Torah and life, also to show Yeshiva lights genuine personality that I grew up with and love. Billy Crystal performs Yiddish Scat at the Tony Awards by Andrew Lappin. Ella Fitzgerald, wherever you are, I apologize in advance. Billy Crystal gave this year's Tonys a jolt of Jewish shtick when he coaxed the audience into a call-and-response Yiddish scat routine as part of a live performance to promote his his Broadway musical, Mr. Saturday Night. In a good-faith mockery of Fitzgerald's own famous scat routine, Crystal, in character as his show's fading comedian star Buddy Young Jr., let loose on the Saturday night, uh, on the Sunday night telegast with a series of nonsensical, guttural sounds vaguely approximating Yiddish. He then gleefully entered the audience for a bit of crowd work, messing with attendees Samuel L. Jackson and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who unwittingly became a Jewish Hamilton alter ego. I'm Alexander Rabinowitz. Miranda has proven his Jewish theater bona fides before. He sang to life from Fiddler on the Roof at his own wedding and performed in Hebrew in a college a cappella group. After briefly cursing an old Jew's worst nightmare stares, Crystal ended his routine by leading Radio City Music Hall in a giant Oy Vey chant. It was surely a nice consolation prize given that Mr. Saturday Night, based on Crystal's 1992 movie of the same name, left the evening with none of the five awards it had been nominated for. The top prize for Best Musical instead went to Pulitzer Prize winner A Strange Loop. Some other Jewish Jewish adjacent nominees were more successful. The Lehman Trilogy, an expansive play about multiple generations of the Jewish banking family, took home Best Play and four other Tonys. Company, a gender-swapped revival of the classic Stephen Sondheim show that premiered shortly after the Broadway titan's death, won five awards, including Best Musical Revival, and Take Me Out, a restaging of Jewish playwright Richard Greenberg's 2002 play about a professional baseball player who comes out as gay to his teammates, one for Best Revival of a Play, as well as for its lead actor, Jesse Tyler Ferguson. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.